Welcome to Cut to Kellogg, the podcast of the Media and Entertainment Club at the Kellogg School of Management. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Richard Brem. Richard is an expert on stories. He has made a career out of making stories about stories, which is to say that he has made many entertainment documentaries. In the world of Harry Potter, that was Richard. Titanic, 20 years later, also Richard. He has been in the industry for over 30 years as a studio executive, screenwriter, and now documentary filmmaker. He is an expert in distillation, in relating what he sees and hears to an audience. In this conversation, he tells us about his maverick life, what it's like to film a film set, and gives his advice for finding your career niche. There are lots more than you might think in Hollywood. All right, here we go. And on. And rolling sound. What? All right. We are here with Richard Brem. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. This is our sure. one of our first episodes about documentaries and film. So we're going to learn a lot today. It would be great if you could just start by giving us a, a brief overview. We just had a, a bio of your career as a whole, but we'd love to know more about what your career has looked like in the documentary space, what your day-to-day looks like as a producer and your experience there. Sure. I came to the documentary space in 2004. I had been working as an executive at Universal Pictures for a number of years. And before that, I had been a writer. And before that, I had been an actor. And that was what I came out here to do. And just found, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and how I was going to get there. I noticed... In the actor world, you would spend a lot of time with zero power waiting for your opportunity to get started. And then at a certain point, I just thought I have spent, <laughs> you know, for what you guys would think of as a huge amount of money, we spent about a quarter of that when I went to school. So we, I'd spent like $60,000 to go through Princeton University. And I just felt like, wow, I just wasted all of this education to be an actor. And I started into the corporate space. I was working at Universal on television for a while. And I had gotten into film and was working as a producer for a while. And every step of the way, I felt like it just wasn't aligned. Like I I would rather be the guy writing the script than the guy talking to the guy about writing the script and giving him notes. So it's just been, been this kind of gradual sort of frustration with the opportunities that were in front of me. They were great opportunities. They just weren't what I wanted to do. So in 2004, I went from being a universal executive, overseeing things that were being made by this one company, and I worked it out. I ended up with this company called New Wave Entertainment that did uh, a whole bunch of things. They, run, they have a company called Comedy Dynamics. We used to do uh, a lot of television specials, a lot of stuff with the movie business. So we worked on Harry Potter, we worked on Constantine, we worked on Batman Begins, we worked on uh, Born Identity, we worked on hundreds, hundreds of movies. I worked on hundreds of movies in the uh, probably 10 years I was there. And and it is a very niche part of the entertainment business. I had learned pretty early on that once you get to Hollywood, you're 
you have the things that everybody thinks about when they go out. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a director. I'm going to be an actor. Some people may be more creative and think I'm going to be a cinematographer. So there's all these things that you could do, but they're generally kind of lumped into a small group of things that are very, very competitive. And then when you get here, you realize, wow, there's a lot of jobs. And a lot of those jobs use the same skill set as these kind of bigger jobs. I'm a screenwriter, I'm an actor, I'm a whatever. And, uh, and that's what I started to discover is that opportunities would open for me that were unusual. And, and this was in a way an unusual aspect of the business. You wouldn't even really think about it being a business, but it pays very well and it pays uh, differently than being a documentary filmmaker. I'm not gonna be Alex Gibney. I'm not gonna be you know these sort of superstar documentarians who worked from the bottom making nothing and they made something that, that made a difference. I work in a business where we're allowed, we're offered product to work on. So right now I'm working on Avatar and these are products that are brought to us by the studios. They trust us, they trust the size of our machine, what we're capable of doing. So we can handle something like Avatar, which is immense. And we create content that is essentially mythologizing. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, and maybe somebody will smack me in the back of the head for saying it, but it's really, it's not about, you know, uncovering the secrets. If any actor and his misbehavior offset, like that's, that's not our business. It's not what we're trying to do. It's a form of marketing, but it's a form of marketing that takes the form of a narrative. And so we craft stories about the making of movies. That's a huge part of my life. I also spend time working on other kinds of documentaries, but usually they're sort of advocacy in that way. So I've worked on, the first thing I ever did was a two-hour documentary on Harry Houdini, and it was done for the History Channel. We, we were given two hours to do a show and a certain amount of money to go and make that show. And it was just programming on the network. It still plays years later. And we had David Copperfield, we had Teller from Penn and Teller, who's the guy who doesn't talk, but he did talk for us, sort of, uh, what do you call it, when you appear in shadow, silhouette, and uh, witness protection. This is sort of like a witness protection measure. That's how we shot Teller. It was amazing because it was very low on their priority list. And we had enormous freedom. So if you're trying to make a movie, they are on the phone with you every day. The studio wants to know everything that you're doing and they want you to justify why you're asking for more money, why you've used the money that you have, why you've cast this person. They want to know everything. And this was a space that definitely has oversight, but it was, it was so much less oversight, which meant that I had the freedom to make the story about Harry Houdini that I wanted to. It was incredibly satisfying. And it was the first time I had found that freedom at any point in the business. So the other question you had was, what is what is the day like? And it really depends upon you know what product we're working on. We spent, I can't talk too much about Avatar. I'm under NDA, but, but I can tell you that we spent probably three years covering everything. It's an enormous project. It's not like any other project in the film business. And there are hundreds, thousands of people involved in it in two continents and they're doing things that nobody has ever done, just like the last one. And this one is all those things plus a whole bunch of other new stuff that will 
be mind blowing. And we've been covering it and we'd go talk to probably 250 interviews. And that doesn't include the interviews that we just did off the cuff. Just you're standing with somebody and tell us what's happening here kind of thing. So a lot. And every interview is probably two hours long. And we have more than I know what to do with. But that means you're going on set. You know, we don't go on set every day. We have somebody who does. I have a colleague who actually works for Lightstorm, which is uh, Jim Cameron and John Landau as the director and producer. They have a whole company set up to make their movies. And they had a guy hired specifically to film them and work with us. And so he was on set every day, except for the pandemic part. And then we go on set in order to get those interviews. So you have somebody who's acting and he's only acting for such a period of time. Maybe he's there for three weeks. Maybe he's there, you know, for a year and we'll go and we'll interview him and then we'll do somebody else. We'll probably try and do five interviews in a day. And we're very particular about what those interviews look like. I know that when you see these documentaries, if they're in our space, they've taken enormous care in making sure that the person looks good, making sure that this camera looks good, that they're looking at something. It's not just a wall with a sh- you know a shadow across it. We have you know maquettes of Neytiri, or we have maquettes of maquettes of, of Jake Sully, and they're positioned in the back, and it's this very moody kind of cool uh, looking shot. They have, you know, light in the front of them and light in the back so that they pop, they, they look special and whatever the situation is. And when we cut them, when we use them in editorial, they're on screen for maybe three seconds, sometimes two seconds, but it captures your attention and you remember them. And more than that, they remember them and the studio remembers. And so anyway, so that's our, our process. Well, you know, we have to navigate that world. That's our businesses to find those people, the times of those people, there's an enormous amount of work just getting them organized. So that's a big part of it is just kind of hearing the stories, finding what people want to talk about. Much like you, I would rather have a conversation with somebody. And so that's generally the tone of what we're doing is just trying to get uh, a sense of their story and what they do and uh, what they care about and why this matters and why this is being done this way and not another way. And so we gather all that. We have a lot of B-roll and that has been shot by my colleague at Lightstorm and we tell stories. So those could be two hour long stories. Those could be a TV series on Disney plus. Those could be little things that show up on Facebook or Instagram or any of those places. It could be, you know, we're going to do a scene breakdown or we're going to do a profile about James Cameron and that will happen both before the movie opens. So the movie opens mid-December. We'll do pieces that'll come out before. Usually they're quite uh, short. And then after that, in the spring, probably three months, four months, whatever it is, we'll start coming out with Blu-ray and then we'll start showing up Disney Plus. This whole kind of machine that takes in what we do. So that's a big part of my life. And during the day, I'm either out on set or I am in my office writing. I write all the time. And that's why I got a job in the first place is I understand the writing of this stuff. But I will also do documentaries. I did a bunch of pieces with Jim Cameron. One was the 20th anniversary of Titanic, mm-hmm. which was less of uh, the kind of stuff that we normally do. It was really more about the science of Titanic, 
we met with a guy who had originally discovered the Titanic about 30 years ago. We talked to people who were the descendants of people who had been on the ship, that kind of thing. And it was on National Geographic. I did a thing with Jim on World Ocean Day a couple of years ago. It was a piece called What Would the Ocean Say? And it was just a three minute long film using the most spectacular footage of oceanography, you know, life under the sea down to like microscopic coral, all this stuff. And it was beautiful. Anyway, it played at the UN General Assembly and then it went out into the world just online. So it's been seen by, I don't know, 10 million people. And most importantly, it was seen by these people and it was an advocacy piece. I did a piece on wingsuit flying with a guy named Jeb Corliss. Jeb Corliss is the kind of the bad boy of base jumping and wingsuit flying. He had been in South Africa in Cape Town and he had flown off of Table Mountain, which is, you know, a big landmark site. And he was catching balloons as he was flying down the mountain, which meant that he was getting his wingsuit five feet off the ground, which when you're flying at 130 miles an hour is crazy. <laughs> and he had a guy go before him and that guy had flown over those balloons, hadn't tried to catch him, but when he flew over those balloons, they moved and they got stuck on a rock. And so when Jeb flew down from the mountain, the balloon was not in the same place. It was not five feet off the ground. It was maybe two feet off the ground, three feet off the ground. And he struck and he flew into the mountain at 130 miles an hour and ripped the hell out of himself. He was thought dead, thought there was no way he would survive if he was alive. And he kind of came back from that. And our story was about him not only flying, we actually had that footage of him flying into the mountain and lying on the ground moaning. But we also had the story of him coming back and going back to Table Mountain and, and the idea of how does he get back on his feet and go fly again. So we were in helicopters. We were flying around just beautiful sights in, in Cape Town. And, and then we put it into a story and it became a documentary. It's a one-hour documentary. It was done by Discovery. It ended up playing on Netflix. And as far as I know, it's still there. It's, it's really fascinating to hear about all the the different you know experiences that you've had and the, and the stories that you've told. It strikes me that in order to do this kind of work, you need to, and, and certainly it varies when the studio asks you to do this as part of a marketing initiative, but that you have to have just incredible access to the initial storyteller. So there's this very interesting layered narratives going on, which I think, you know, a lot of people talk about movie magic and you've made a career about sharing how it all comes together you know within the parameters of doing stuff for the studios there is a very regulated system that we enter into you know it's like they have a schedule we're going to be here on set which is here at the Balmoral Hotel in Scotland and at that Balmoral Hotel they're going to be there for three days and it's going to be you know Jamie Foxx and whoever is going to be on set there that day. Jamie Foxx is going to be busy the entire day, so you're not going to get him. But maybe we can get you with him the next day. We have people who don't like being filmed. They feel like it's a distraction. Mm. And so you have your main camera, like they want to be able to put all their energy towards that 
with the A camera, and then there's us with the same kind of camera. We also have, you know, beautiful 4K cameras that are used for making movies. And we're also there. And so they feel distracted. I don't know if I buy that as an excuse, but it, it puts parameters on what we're allowed to do. Our guys get kicked off set all the time and then they come back the next day. So yeah, all that's very true. Like if you think about what happens on shows like Tiger King or, you know, other kind of docu-series type shows is there is an enormous amount of producing happening behind the scenes. Hmm. I did a show called Todrick which was on MTV, it was a docuseries about Todger Paul. And it was just a silly show. And the whole thing was really about him making a video. And the only thing true about the show was the fact that he made the video. Whether or not he had no money to make the video, I don't know. I think that he really did try to make his music videos without any money. And it was just his pals in a sort of Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney kind of way, like putting together a video. And what he did was phenomenal like they're beautiful beautiful videos and whether it's he wrote the song or he got the songs from Katy Perry or whoever they would do amazing things but we would create a show that was about the making of the video and so we're going to need to have Peter Pan costumes so let's go talk to the lady who does Peter Pan every year and tours it around the country we did a deal with Sandy who had this traveling Peter Pan show and we got their crocodile and we got their you know, their pirate boat and we got all this stuff from them. And that was part of the show was, you know, going and being silly and that was all produced, but it was, it was, how do we create the drama of making the show? And that was all created, not scripted, but it was, this is a situation you're going to be in. This is where we're going to go. These are the kind of conversations you're going to have. All right, let's do it again. And that's the way those kind of shows work. The things that I do are much more trying to capture what's happening you know where you're trying to capture mm -hmm. like we are guerrilla filmmakers in a way like we're there trying to film whatever is happening and and doing it in a way that allows us to create an aggregate of of cool materials to turn into an entertainment documentary and the show that i did on wingsu flying was kind of halfway there you know, it was, it was a serious thing. Jeb had broken himself up. We had to get him as he's, you know, recuperating in the hospital. He had a thing about not taking any meds, which is insane with the idea of a guy who's literally torn himself up from the top of his body to the bottom. And he wouldn't take any, any uh, painkillers or meds, I think. And so all that was story, pretty natural story, but we had to kind of get to the idea of you're now broken, you're now getting better, and then you're now going back to Cape Town. And we enforce the idea of you going back to Cape Town. Let's have a conversation about that between you and your best buddy. And so there was a little bit of those same conversations were happening offset, but we would do it on set. We do it in a pretty background. And it's not trying to tell a fictional story, but at the end of the day, we were flying over real mountains in Cape Town and they jumped off of them. And we had cameramen flying alongside of them as they do it, that are filming them and they're filming themselves with their GoPro. All that was real, but the storytelling of it sometimes needed to be boosted. So you spent a lot of time talking about how you've built your career around telling stories per se and stories about stories and 
would love to know over the course of your career, what have you learned about what makes a compelling story? You know, what have you learned about stories from this, this long career of crafting layers of them? I would say two things. First off, I think that there's a trend in the industry that is looking for easy emotion. There's a a network TLC, their whole mode when people pitch to them saying, we're looking for OMG with heart. So it could be 600 pound people. It could be short people trying to have a normal life. And cable kind of went into that feeling like they were losing viewers and pushing the boundaries of what is good storytelling versus what, you know, is going to get viewers. And I feel like that is happening as well in the streamer business with shows like Tiger King, that there's a kind of drive towards the bottom to tell stories. And I don't know that they're necessarily the best stories, but they're, oh my God, stories. And I don't really have an interest in pursuing stories about 600 pound people and the things that they do. I'm not really interested in telling stories that don't connect to me. And, and for me, that's what it's about. Like whatever it is that we're dealing with, I'm interested in the people that I'm talking to. I'm interested in you. That's how I approach the interviews that I do. And that's how I approach the stories that I do. I can get to where it matters. You know, like I work on Avatar and it matters to the people who work on it. It matters to the people who go see it. It matters. You know, these guys, Jim, especially is he's left the U S he now lives in New Zealand and it is a saner life for him. He cares about what's happening to the planet. He cares about climate change. He's invested serious money in trying to change people's habits. And he's invested really the last days of his career, which will be over the next 10, 15 years on this franchise avatar because it is a way for him to talk about what we're doing to our planet and that matters to me you know i did a thing for the democratic national convention back in 2016 we did a video that played at the convention and it was talking about climate change it was uh, narrated by sigourney weaver and it was basically a scare show it was all these things that are happening and they're happening because of climate change and that to me is what matters and that to me is what I look for in whatever story. Like Harry Houdini, I know he was, but I didn't care who he was. He wasn't part of my relevant life. Somebody handed me the show and I took it, but I connected to Harry. I connected to what mattered to him. And I found a way to tell a story that way. You know what? I did this thing three months ago and it was for Steven Spielberg. And I remember probably 30 years ago, Steven Spielberg was giving the AFI award, which is one of the big kind of cinema awards that we give out every year. He was giving the AFI award to David Lean and he watched this montage reel of all of David Lean's movies. And at the end of it, he said, I wonder if when they do this for me, if I will have movies like that. And I was so touched by that idea. Like the guy was king. You know, he had done E.T. and he had just done Jurassic Park. And every movie he made a gajillion dollars and people loved it. But I think he felt like, what's next? Like, what's my next step? And between the time that he said that, Jurassic Park 
had already opened. And in December of that year, Schindler's List was going to open. So he knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to shift into a different place. But I, I remember then, 30 years ago, thinking, God, I would love to do a reel for Steven Spielberg. And we did one in December. It was for LACMA, a big museum here in Los Angeles. They do a big fundraiser and they find some big filmmaker that they're going to honor and they bring people out. So the Spielberg people thought, Amblin thought that, that the people were putting on the show were putting together a reel. And the people at LACMA thought that they were putting together their own reel. And then about two weeks before this all happened, they're like, wait, you're not doing the reel because we're not doing the reel. <laughs> and, uh, and they came to us and, and, uh, and I spent the next two weeks putting together this reel. And it was, it was like this look back at my life. Like I, I saw all of his movies and they all meant so much to me, you know, from Jaws to E.T. and Indiana Jones and then into Schindler. And those reels are, they're kind of like cotton candy. Because there's, there's no meat to it. You don't have anybody talking. You don't have anybody give context to it. But you feel this overwhelming sense of, of love or something. I get don't the, know. You get the warm and fuzzies. <laughs> you get the warm and fuzzies. And hopefully you take it even a little bit further. And, and this was the ultimate. Like, you know, I, I've done those for Universal. I've done them for 20th Century Fox. I've done them for different people. But... This was the ultimate and it was just so beautiful. I had an editor, he's really the responsible for it, but Spielberg was like, I've had these done my whole career. I've never had one as good as that. Like he, I mean, he would watch it again and again and again, never had a note. He never made a change to what it was. And it was the most satisfying thing I'd done in this space. I do want to ask you, you know, a, a lot of our listeners are going to be people who are starting their careers or at pivot points in their careers. And it sounds like you had a massive pivot point when you moved from working for the, the studio in more of a corporate setting to being on the creative side and have really carved out a niche for your passion in this very specific kind of filmmaking and storytelling. And so I'd love to know if you have any advice for people who are seeking out their version of ideal career status or, or role fulfillment. Sure. I think it's a hard business to be a part of. And I can't tell you how many people that were incredibly energetic in the same place as me, where we're working as an assistant, as a development office at Fox or whatever we were. And they just kind of drift away after a while. They're like, this isn't feeding me. And there's a lot of that in Hollywood of jobs that don't feed you. But the other thing is there's a lot of jobs in Hollywood and you would be amazed at how many opportunities pop up. At least they popped up for me. I wish I had gotten into this space 30 years ago. Honestly, I didn't. I got in 15 years ago, 18 years ago. And, and I do amazing things. You meet presidents, you just all of a sudden find yourself in front of your hero. And they're not even necessarily Hollywood heroes. So this is a really good space to be because they put money into it and because they care about it, but they also don't know what you know. But for me, like it was, there was such a satisfaction in having a maverick life and, and being able to do children's books and I'm writing screenplays. I'm trying to do a movie. We're doing these documentaries that we're doing. We're also doing documentaries that stand on their own that just play on television or play on Netflix or whatever. 
it's a it's a good niche specifically for me but i think there's a lot of that of people you know it's like you don't necessarily have the skill to be the guy who wrote Schindler's list but you may be a guy who has the skill to be a a staff writer (laughs) yeah it, it sounds like um being open to opportunities that you didn't even know existed and realizing that there's more than one way into the room where it happens is the mentality to have. It was that exactly. I mean, I, I, the first time I ever heard about content, they were talking about hiring me as the head of content at universal. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll be that. Like it's a good sounding title. And I didn't really know what it was. And yet all of a sudden I had this job and it was, it was kind of creating the business as we went. It didn't really exist up until, you know, we were reusing HBO specials to put on DVDs, that kind of thing. Like, you know, I don't know what it's like working in other businesses. I've only worked in this business, but it feels like, you know, there are MBAs all over and there's a general tendency to be the business development guy. You know, there's a tendency to do the numbers for the studio but the people that I knew at Universal, especially that were those kind of guys, they went off and ran different businesses. They were into games. They were into like amazing opportunities. And they're not the opportunities that you think I'm going to go up the ladder and then I'm going to be the COO and I'm going to run things. It's, uh, it's about jumping mm-hmm. into opportunity. Well, thank you, Richard. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I want to, I do want to go through our, our final cut questions, our rapid fire section before we wrap up here. Okay. What is your favorite piece of recent media that you would recommend? There's a show called the tunnel that is on one of the streamers and it is a co-production, I think between France and England. And it has the woman who played Fleur, Delica. Harry Potter. She's in it. And then uh, a guy who played Stannis in Game of Thrones. The oh. two of them, they basically meet in the tunnel, the tunnel, and there's a dead body right in the center. And you would think, this is not really for me. But we just started watching it. And the woman who, who played Fleur, is, she was on the spectrum. I don't know quite what her situation was but she was just such a compelling and moving character mostly because she was so very rigid and how she saw things and he was so very not rigid mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how much I missed it when that show was done like I just I physically missed it and when it was on I couldn't wait to get home to watch it and you, you just like stop yourself from just watching the whole thing you're just like I just I want it tomorrow so I have to stop today I want it tomorrow I love those kind of shows I love the kind of European things that we've never been able to see before. I especially love like Scandinavian crime dramas. I love them. Interesting. (laughs) Cool. I I guess a similar question. What TV show or movie will you always rewatch? There's like five that come to mind, but I will say Iron Giant. Okay. What celebrity have you been thinking about lately? I do not think about celebrities very often. (laughs) There's a movie Coda, which is nominated for best picture this year and there's a guy by the name of troy kotzer who plays the dad he's deaf and he was amazing he was just beautiful in this movie we're talking to him about playing a character in a movie that i wrote so i've been very fixated on him in particular and on his journey 
and I'm hoping he wins the Academy Award because he is special. Cool. And I like the idea of somebody who doesn't get the opportunity to play in every movie being recognized for the amazing work he does. If you could live without one type of media, music, movies, TV, live experiences, which one would you live without? Well, the one you had shown me before was games. I live without that every moment <laughs> of my day. I just don't care. Uh, and the other ones I love, podcasts, music and TV and film. I go see movies. I've been seeing movies throughout the pandemic. If there's a theater open, I'll go. I love it. Games. I'm even working on a game. Ooh. Like in the Maverick weird, uh, it'll be like a VR game. And it's cool, but I, I don't really have the skill set for it. Well, thank you so much. I, I have been really inspired by by your career and all of the different things that you've done and the ways that you have followed your, your passion. So really appreciate you coming on Cut to Kellogg. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, give us a follow on Spotify and leave a review. If you're looking for more content, you can check out our blog, Lights Camera Kellogg at lightscamerakellogg.com and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn, Kellogg Media Entertainment. Cut to Kellogg is a production of the Media and Entertainment Club at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. It is produced by Ray Hung, Lindsay Kalbaugh, and Kelsey O'Connor. Our theme song is written and performed by Ryan Blackwell. Tune in next time to hear more insights on the media and entertainment industry.